was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so honored to welcome a guest that I've wanted to talk to since I started this podcast, Tony winner Hal Linden. Hal Linden just finished a very successful run opposite Bernie Koppel in Two Jews Talking Off-Broadway, but his 60-plus year career has spanned the original productions of Bells Are Ringing with Judy Holliday, Wildcat with Lucille Ball, Something More, On a Clear Day You Can See Forever, Ilya Darling, The Education of Hyman Kaplan, The Rothschilds, I'm Not Rappaport, The Sisters Rosenzweig, and The Gathering, as well as revivals of Cabaret, The Pajama Game, and Three Men on a Horse. He is also well known for playing the title role on TV's Barney Miller, and his other screen credits include Black's Magic, The Colony, Granddaddy Daycare, and A New Life. So now, without further ado, here's Hal Linden. <laughs> well, I would love to um, to begin by asking you, how did you first become interested in theater? In acting? Oh, that was very strange. Um, uh, let me give you a, a picture of uh, my youth. I was a, uh, a musician. I was the, the, the youngest of eight cousins who all were musically trained. I was trained in classically. And then eventually uh, I, I picked up the saxophone and joined it. I was a clarinet player, a classroom clarinet player. And I picked up the saxophone and joined, got into bands and whatnot. And in, uh, at the age of 15, which would be 1946, there were no musicians around. Everybody was still in the army. So I was able to become a band leader at a resort uh-huh. at the age of 15. From 15 on, I was a professional musician. Never had any interest in theater. Didn't go, was not in my theater didn't do theater in high school, didn't do theater in college. I was a professional musician, so working right through high school and college. And when I got into the army, I was in a post band. I played clarinet in the band and played the saxophone in the combos and the weekends we played the officers club. And uh, we had a piano player in the band. Uh, who did the weekends with me at the officers club and the NCO club and whatnot. Um, and he used to get borrowed by special services to do, to do shows. They didn't have a piano player on their uh, roster. So uh, he kept getting borrowed every so often. He'd be gone for three, four days or a week. And one weekend, one week, he just said to me, listen, you want to sing a song? Because I was also the boy vocalist with all these bands I played with. 
Uh, you want to sing a song? I'll, I'll have him uh, borrow you too. I said, sure, go ahead. So he did that, and uh, they borrowed me, and they staged a, a thing in a show with me singing a song. It was very nice. And then they said to me, listen, we need somebody to play this part in a sketch. There's only a few lines at the end of the sketch you come in. And I said, okay, I, I can handle it, I think, you know. So I, I, I did the sketch, and, and to this day, I can remember making that entrance because it was traumatic. <laughs> that is the warmth of the stage. I can feel it to this moment. With the lights on on the stage, how warm it was. I was not frightened. Uh. I felt, and not only that, I said my first line and got a laugh. That's very seductive. Oh, yes. And that started it. All of a sudden, I now had people from the theater to talk to. And what do you do to get into the theater? Because uh, that was the year when music changed. Uh, that was 1954. Music changed. Uh, when I went into the service, there was Stan Kenton and Woody Herman and Count Basie, Duke Ellington. It was the height of the big band era. When I came out of the service, it was Bill Haley and the Comets. <laughs> All the big bands were gone. And so my, I had to make a decision. What did I want to do? Either I was going to play this kind of strange music that that didn't appeal to me, or I was going to try the theater. And that's what got me into the theater. Uh-huh. Late in life, <laughs> much later than most kids, uh-huh. I, I, I used my GI Bill. I went to the American Theater Wing for about three months, uh, just long enough to find out where the summer stock auditions were. Auditioned for the summer stock, got the job for the chorus, and proceeded to become an actor. That was it. Oh, yes, definitely. And did you have any formal training in acting or singing later on? Or did you... Did it later, well, when, when, I, when I came home from the Army, I had asked some friends who, you know, and my friends in the uh, special services who were actors, what do you do? What do you have to do to Uh, do it? So I was already studying voice and studying uh, uh, dancing. I was going to to ballet class to try to get, you know, loose enough to be able to do something. (laughs) Um, I actually, except for that, Three months at the American Theater Wing, I did not study acting uh-huh. until after I had my first lead on Broadway. Wow. When, when uh, about two years, about 57, right? Two years after I did my first summer stock, I did another season of summer stock. And the uh, girl I was going with was... Uh, in the chorus, in the dancing chorus of Bells Are Ringing, when the understudy, the standby for Sidney Chaplin, who was the lead, uh, left, and she recommended me to the stage manager. I did not have an agent. 
I did not have anybody to, to, so I had to audition for the stage manager in order to get an audition. Ah. Uh, I finally got the audition, auditioned maybe four times, finally auditioned for, for Judy Holiday herself, who said okay to me, and I became the, sta- the understudy. I was going to be the understudy. They were going to put me in the chorus. But first, I had to learn the, 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 the part so that I could, so they could uh, be there. And I started on a, on a Monday with a stage manager and a script. We got to Saturday was the first understudy rehearsal. And right in the middle of it, the stage manager came out and said, you better keep rehearsing because you're on today. <laughs> Oh, so we had days of rehearsal, five days, whatever. I made my Broadway debut in the leading role opposite Judy Holiday. Wow. Which started my career because uh, I was then elevated to stand by. I didn't have to go into the chorus. And uh, eventually achieved it to the role. I, I uh, got the, uh, the part when Sydney left. So that started my whole career. After that, after that, the girl who got me the job, I married her. Uh-huh. She and she was the one. She was the one who said, "You know, maybe we should study acting <laughs> to find out what we're doing." And that's the first time I studied acting. I studied with Paul Mann and Lloyd Richards, and uh, became a kind of a um, acolyte of theirs. Oh, yeah. And what was it like to be playing opposite Judy Holiday, and what was she like? Well, she she was the most generous woman uh, I've ever worked with. Tell you a quick story: the the song "Just in Time," which was uh, my song in the show, was sung uh, just it was just a two scene down down in one. <clears throat> And all it was, was on, we were on the way to a party, and I have a little dialogue, and I take her in my arms and dance with her. Uh, just across the stage, to just in time. And uh, there's kind of like singing in her ear, you know? Yeah. So I, I, we did the scene, I took her in my arms, I started singing and dancing across the stage. <laughs> and after about four bars, I could feel her hand on my back twisting us. So we were dancing sideways across the stage. And I finally realized what she was doing. She was turning upstage so that when I was singing in her ear, I was facing the audience oh. and not the win. <laughs> that's the kind, that's what I mean by generous, not too many stars. Who would do that? <laughs> she was uh, quite a wonderful woman. And by the way, one of the most brilliant women I ever met intellectually. Oh. Now that's weird because she had the reputation for being a dumb blonde. Right, right. A great actress and was able to play a dumb blonde. But it always bothered her that, that people took that as her true persona, which it was not. We played Scrabble or any word games. I ended up touring with her in the show, playing the lead opposite her. 
And very often she would have, you know, games at her house. She always won. She was horrific. She oh. was just brilliant. But uh, nobody would give her credit for her brain. It was only her, her body and her persona. Oh, yes. Interesting. It is, it is. And being the understudy on the standby for Sidney Chaplin, were you put under pressure to do it sort of exactly like he was doing it, or did they let you find your own interpretation? Or Well, I'll tell you the truth. I really don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> it was a long time ago. You're talking 1957, 58. That's a long time ago. Uh, so I don't remember exactly. I pretty much did. I certainly did his staging. You have to do that. Right. I didn't character that much. No, I don't think I changed it. I just did it, you know, through my voice and body. And it, but it, by definition, it looked uh, different. Yes. Uh, but obviously it was good enough that they gave me the part after <laughs> he left. And, and that, started, that started my career. Unfortunately, my career became the standby. Uh -huh. So from the next decade, practically, that was the, that was the, I'd always uh, they'd open a show. I didn't have to audition. <laughs> they would say, "Well, we got to get a standby, Allen, and get Hudson to the standby for this some Broadway star or some movie star or television star." So I did about a decade of that until I finally got my own roles. And a show that I believe you were an understudy in, in addition to being in full time, was Wildcat. And what was it like to be working with Lucille Ball? Well, I knew Lucy. I knew Lucy from when I had done Bells Are Ringing in Los Angeles. One of her her head writer had seen the show and recommended me to her. Uh, she actually came and saw the show, and after the show, we went out and we had. Uh, she basically said, what do you want to do? You know, she was going to, uh, anyway, when, when the, we had to finish the, the tour. It was summer and she went to Europe with Desi and that's where they had their big breakup. Uh -huh. So, uh, when she came back, she was not in a mood or a memory to do anything. Uh, she actually was producing the Desilu Review and used my wife, oh. the girl who was in the chorus of Bells Ringing, uh, in that show. Uh, I, of course, had this reputation, so it, it was a show of, of up and coming unknowns. Oh. So she said, Oh, no, you're, you've got a career already. That's not for you. We'll find something else for you. Well, they never did find anything for me. So we eventually went back to New York, and I. Ended up in the show with uh, with Lucy on Broadway. And did you think that Lucy was sort of ready to or up to doing a musical? Or I know people debate about that sometimes. Wasn't the point. If that had been any kind of book or any kind of uh, the show was not that strong. Uh, Lucy, it could have run for as long as Lucy wanted to run in it because it was Lucy. People would come see it. Yes, she was strong enough. She could she could hold it. Uh, unfortunately, her discipline wasn't that good. And once the show got mediocre to bad reviews, 
she was kind of depressed about the whole thing. She thought she would come to to Broadway and you know take over the the, the whole street. Well, I said it was a it was an audience show, but it was not a critic show. They didn't like it at all. So she once she lost interest in being you know the Broadway star, uh, kind of went downhill. The uh, her discipline wasn't all that great. What we consider discipline, you know, sticking to the script and sticking to the staging so that the, everybody knows where everybody is, you know. You don't have to live in a Broadway show. Uh, so uh, it got a little testy there, and she eventually touched the show. She got, quote, sick and left the show. And uh, that was it, so close. But it wasn't wasn't her talent that was the problem. Oh. Uh, her discipline and, and her disappointment in not being welcomed to Broadway as the big Broadway star. That was what the problem was. <laughs> and you were also working on that show with Michael Kidd, the great director who you worked with several times. And what was that collaboration like with him? Michael was wonderful. Michael was just wonderful. Uh, he ended up directing me in uh, the Rothschilds. He was originally the choreographer, and when the director left, he took over as director as well. And I remember his his direction it was interesting. The Rothschilds started out with me. Uh, it was about the, the the ghetto in Frankfurt, Germany, and. The, one of the very first scenes you have that uh, all the Jews who passed the guard had to bow before before a guard, you know, just to get into the ghetto, and uh, and that and quite honestly, that's the only way you could survive was to bow and to scrape. And uh, I was concerned that an audience would lose what wouldn't want to be associated with someone who bows and scrapes. The Rothschilds, in a sense, was a metaphor for the civil rights. It was about an, uh, uh, a, a minority group trying to push its way into society. And basically, it was about how the first two generations do that. The first generation, which was the character that I played, had to do it by bowing and scraping and taking droppings from the establishment till he finally you know, created something of value. Uh, we're the second generation which were able to confront them directly. Uh, read uh, Walter White and Thurgood Marshall for the first generation and Malcolm X for the second generation. So they're, they're, that, that was the basis of it. But I didn't know that, you know, if I'm going to bow and scrape through the whole first act, and that's what I had to do, uh, what did the audience would, I, you know, give me any credit for having any spine? And would they dislike me? Right. And uh, so we had a, uh, I, we talked about it before we started, and they wrote a song in the first act where I said to my wife, we're going to get out of this ghetto. I will bow, I will scrape, I will do everything I have to do, but we're going to get the hell out of here. That was the song. 
And when we we opened in Detroit, and I did that number, and it only lasted about a week. Because I remember Michael coming into my dressing room. He said, we really don't need it. That audience sees what you're doing. They, you don't have to tell them you're going to do it. They see that you're, you're a, a strong stand-up human being, but in order to get ahead, you got to do what you got to do, and they can, they know it. So we we took the number out. It never it was never never in the show when we opened. Uh, but that was Michael's sensitivity to to what was going on. Oh yes, dear dear man, I I loved Michael. We were very friendly for the rest of our lives. I did. Uh, three men on a horse from yeah, uh, later on in, in my career. No, three men on a horse? No, room service. Later on in my in my life, uh, uh, he, he was around till till he died. Yeah. Dear dear man, dear dear man. Besides being incredibly competent, a very good director, very good director. He he knew how to talk to actors in the industry. He certainly understood staging. Uh, and he was just just one of the best. Oh, yeah. yeah. And um, a show you did, I believe, early on, even earlier, maybe then bells are ringing, was a show called Script for Action on the Road with Joey Fay. And, <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> you did your homework. <laughs> yes, yes, I tried to. <laughs> yeah. I'll and, tell you the story about Script for Action. First of all, it was, it was directed by a man. He was a long-time stage director, but he was long past the height of his career, and he was quite a drinker. Half the time he was bombed. So it was a bit of, everybody was directing themselves. It was a mess. <laughs> it was awful. Uh, yes, Joey Clay, old, vaudeville, terrific, and uh, learned a lot from them. Anyway, uh, we had a number, uh, a boy's, it took place on a ship, and we were sailors, and we had a kind of a boys tap dance number. All the sailors tap dancing, including the singing boys, which included me. I had to learn how to tap dance for that. Uh, and it was staged with an exit because it was it was a big big tap dance number, a big number, and we and we staged it. We all exited, and then we had to come back on because we were in the scene. Uh, mopping the deck and whatnot while the scene went on. So uh, that was also staged, a return. Everybody danced on in line. Uh, and uh, Joey would stand there uh, and, and Danny would stand, would stand as we entered. And the first guy got a mop. Then the second one got a pail. And the third one got a mop. The fourth one got a pail. And so we were all on stage with a mop and a pail. And then they would go on with the scene. So uh, I guess Joey recognized that I was more than just the chorus boy. He pulled me aside. He says, listen, this is what we're going to do. At the end of the, you get on the end of the line. And when I, when you get there, we're not going to have a mop or a, or a pail for you. You just give me, give me a hard time. Hey, what's the matter? What am I, chopped liver? I don't get a mop. I don't get a pail. <laughs> That was that was the the thing, and you know, to give him a hard time, and he would take the uh, 
whatever Danny was holding and give it to me. And then Danny would give him a hard time. That was the, that was the, the, the capper on the entrance. So they could start the scene that way. Well, give a chorus boy a line or an ad lib. Oh boy. <laughs> it turned into a, my, my speech. <laughs> it was a by the time I got to it. I mean, and I practically cried. It was, I, I was emoting all over the place. And everybody watched it get longer and longer. My, the only speech I had in the show. <laughs> longer and longer and more emotional, more emotional. One day in, uh, we were still out of town, I guess. We never came to New York. It was closed in Pittsburgh. Uh, one day, there was a man there, I remember. We all danced on, and uh, at the end of it, I said, Hey, hey, what's the matter with me? I don't get a, I don't get a pop. I don't get, what am I? A, 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 I live here. Don't I have to money? I'm a human being. And I, and I started my scene, and he, immediately, the minute I said, What's the matter? Don't I get a mop? He took Danny's and said, Yeah, here. Uh. And that was it. The entire, everybody in the chorus was in on it except me. And, they were, and every, all the shoulders were shaking as they were laughing. There I was without my speech. And Danny did my speech. Uh. <laughs> Danny, Danny did. So uh, I learned early on uh, the, 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 the value of discipline. Let's put it that way. Anyway. That was uh, that was my first live show. I had the only thing I had before that was a on Broadway was a musical. I closed in rehearsal. Oh, <laughs> which show was that? That was a musical review called uh, I can't remember what was it. It closed in rehearsal. Never had the guy had it underfunded, and when he took the song away from one of the singers, her father took out the, pulled out his money. <laughs> and that was it. We closed the rehearsal. <laughs> and so, um, speaking of tap dancing, like in Strip for Action, you of course starred in the off-Broadway production of Anything Goes. And and what do you think made the shortened version of it so successful, or the changed version of it? That you the changed version. I had a, an impossible book. Uh, for the, for its time, it was a 1930s something show, uh, and the book was 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 the opening number in in the original book takes place in one in a bar, and the opening song is "I Get a Kick Out of You," Reno singing it to Billy. After which, there's no relationship between the two of them. It was a very weird book. A couple of jokes thrown thrown together, and you know, some good musical numbers, but it didn't have any. It didn't have structure. Uh, the producers and the director uh, recognized that fact, and what they did was they abandoned about five of the of the songs, which were not great uh, from Anything Goes, and put in songs from other Cole Porter shows. For instance. Uh, I believe Take Me Back to Manhattan was from a different show. Friendship was certainly from a different show. Uh -huh. uh, I can't remember all the songs, but they 
made the, the score, you know, 50% better just by doing that. And they reordered it. Uh, Reno doesn't sing I Get a Kick Out of You until she's singing it to somebody that matters. <laughs> uh, Lord, whatever his name was, I can't remember. So, uh, and it did an opening number as we got on the boat with the uh, chorus girls, you know, I can't remember what song it was. Uh, so it was, it was totally restructured, re-musicalized, and quite frankly, rewritten uh, book-wise. Oh, yeah. Mickey Dean used to come in every day with a, with a joke book or something and say, hey, you got another joke. You say this, I say that, you know, and, and that's how the book was written. So it was really re reimagined and redone totally. I don't know if they had the right to do it, but uh, it made a, uh, a standard. <laughs> Boy, that's the show that every high school and college does. Right, right. And do you like to, in rehearsal, do you like to suggest things like jokes or changes, sir? And it all depends on who, who you're working with, uh. where you are. Uh, shows, Broadway shows, all depend on who has power. I did a Alan J. Lerner show. Alan J. Lerner is the book writer and the lyric writer. He had all the power. Uh, I did a show, you do a show with George Abbott directing, Mr. Abbott has all the power. It all depends where the, where the power is. Uh, I did shows where I would not open my mouth because you had major stars and I didn't want to, you know, I was just a chorus boy or an understudy or, a, you know, in a small part, so I would not open my mouth. There were certain times when I felt that I could. I did with Mr. Rabbit, for instance, but I didn't do it in rehearsal. I did it after when he was, uh, I did it once on a bus we were traveling to Philadelphia, and I went to the front of the bus and sat down. I said, sir, I have an idea. Let me express it. And I, I gave him the idea, and he said, try it. And we tried it, and he kept it in. Wow. So, yes, I have suggested. Uh, let me put it this way. The longer I was in the theater and the greater my reputation was, the more freedom I had to be able to say uh to express myself. And now, yes, even in this show, in Two, uh, two Jews Talking, yes. I had no problem expressing what I felt was, was uh, the way to do it. Because there, 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 there were disagreements. Everybody thought something different. So we'll try it this way, we'll try it that way, we'll see what happens. Sometimes I was right, sometimes I was wrong. The thing you have to have in this business is a complete awareness that you don't know anything. You think you know things, but you don't know. Nobody knows it till the audience laughs at it or doesn't laugh at it. Right. 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 And I'd love to, um, to ask you more about being directed by George Abbott and Three Men on a Horse and, and what he was like to, to be directed by. Yeah, it was an interesting thing because I was totally miscast in that part. Uh -huh. Because 
I had done a couple of shows for Mr. Abbott. Uh, a couple, well, I had done one show for Mr. Abbott where I did this really highly characterized character. So <laughs> when we, when they uh, were casting, when they were just about to do uh, Three Men on a Horse, there was a disagreement with Sam Levine. Levine wanted someone in the cast that Abbott did not want. And Levine said he wasn't going to do it. So uh, Abbott called me to see if, you know, if we, uh, I would play that part. And by the time I got in the subway down to the office to get the script, Sam had agreed that his suggestion would become the understudy rather than in the play, and, they, and he was going to do it. So Mr. Abbott said, take the script, go down and read it, and tell me what you want to play. So uh, you, 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 rarely you get that kind of choice. <laughs> yeah. So I did. I went out and had a cup of coffee and read the script. And there were only two parts available. One was the kind of villainy. Uh, I, I don't know. It wasn't, it wasn't a particularly interesting villain. The other was the third man on a horse who really should have been played by somebody like Maxie Rosenblum. You know, he was a big dumb guy. And I thought, gee, that would be fun to play. I said, can I try this? And uh, I read a scene for him. He says, sure, yeah, that's fine. Uh, and so I played, you know, way beyond my physical uh, type. Or, uh, or I was a leading man if I was ever going to be. A, I certainly wasn't going to be a leading man in that part. But I, but I played it, and it worked. I played a little differently, but it worked. But he was a big fan, Mr. Rabbit. He, he, he thought uh, he, he was a big fan. Let me put it that way. I, he asked, he offered me this next show. I did that was one I didn't do, and then I eventually ended up doing uh, Pajama Gang, where I got to be a leading man for him. Yeah, he was terrific. Terrific man. He has a bad reputation. Everybody thinks that all he is is step on your cue and say it faster. Faster and funnier. That is not George Abbott. George Abbott was a very sensitive director. Tried to get the scene to be as realistic and as, as truthful as possible. His favorite word, if you didn't like what you were doing, or if he didn't believe what you were doing, he would say, and now that's too actory. Uh-huh. He would call it actory. It's, I, I can see that you're an actor. I don't believe you. Well, I mean, I mean, you know, he didn't ask you. You didn't have to ask him what's my motivation, but he wanted you to, to find it and, and have a reality to your character. He was, uh, he was, uh, he he was all of that and step on your cue and uh, louder and faster and funnier. <laughs> and um, but then again, that, that sometimes that works. Sometimes that works. That uh, that outside in thing, that result orientation. It uh, it's particularly in comedy. If you don't have a good comedic reading, or comedic timing to a line. I don't care how realistic it is, you're not going to get the laugh. So, 
there's something to be said for, for his uh, approach. Right. And you mentioned uh, turning down the show of George Abbott's, and what were some of the roles that you turned down on Broadway or off, and what would make you decide to, to turn down a role? Uh, what did I turn down? The, uh, not that many. The, uh, I turned down Abbott because I had another play. I had, uh, interestingly, yeah, another play. It was a, uh, what was it called? He was doing, oh God, I can't remember names. Uh, I can't remember the name of his play. My play was Love Match. Uh. I did that. And interestingly enough, they both closed the same day. His opened on Broadway, but closed. Ours stayed on the road and closed um, on the same day. So uh, I didn't miss much. Uh, uh, the only other role that I turned down was uh, La Cage Oh. That was very interesting. I, uh, to play the uh, straight one, I said I would have gladly played the, the other one, but <laughs> I didn't play this, the straight role. Anyway. I, I may have had something else going at the same time. I don't recall, but uh, that's the only major role I think I've ever turned down. Although there could have been others that I just passed on right from the script. Oh, yeah, that that would have been fun to see you in Lakasha's as the morphine role. <laughs> yes, that's the one I wanted to do. I was a character actor. I didn't get to play a leading man. Until Pajama Game, I think. I'm trying to recall. Oh, well, maybe I, the Rothschilds. You're the character actor. I mean, I played accents and heavy, heavy role, you know, heavily, heavily characterized parts. Uh, in, in, uh, it wasn't until Pajama Game that I actually played a quote. Oh, no, excuse me. Right from the start, Bells are Ringing was the leading man. But that was... What? Thirteen years right. <laughs> that I did, or fifteen years later, something like that, that I did pajama game. Oh yes. So, and, um, one star that you worked with twice on Broadway around this time was Barbara Harris in The Apple Tree and in On a Clear Day. Apple Tree. Yes, On uh, a Clear Day. In. Uh, in on a clear day, I was still I was just this I was standby, but I did get to go on with her after we got to Broadway. Just one weekend, I think, uh, three or four performances, something like that. She was a very strange lady. Uh, Witness the fact that she kind of left the business. She wasn't. Everybody wanted her to keep going, and she went, I don't know, left the business. Uh, she had her own inner demons, whatever it was. In Apple Tree, I, I performed opposite her for about six weeks, two months, something like that. When she was leaving the show, I was joining it, uh, replacing Larry Blyden, and she was about to leave and did it with her for a while, and then the lady who... who which opposite her, uh, replaced her. Um, the, she was indeed strange. Now that strangeness, 
translated into fascination on the stage. She was a fascinating actress. Uh, you never knew what you were going to see. I remember the op in, in the very beginning of, of Clear Day, uh, Louis Jordan came in. He knew every line in the show. He had studied the script, and he knew every line in the show. Barbara Harris did not want. <laughs> she was working really inside out, you know, filling it up and trying this and trying, which absolutely frustrated Louis something. Uh, the problem was that once you get to Boston and you find out the show is an hour and 20 minutes too long, and they start cutting scenes and rewriting scenes, uh, that becomes a relearn for Louis, but was no problem for Barbara because that's the way she works. It starts from scratch every time. Uh, Louis had a problem with it, and, uh, which is one of the reasons he left the show, I suspect. Anyway. And what do you think was the reason that On the Clear Day wasn't able to be as successful originally as, as maybe it should have been? <laughs> Not good particularly good reviews. You don't need that, my opinion. And uh, I don't know. I can't say I knew better than Alan J. Lerner. Uh, I wish I could have gotten to it before it opened on Broadway. I wish I could have played it in Boston somewhere. Maybe my input would have changed something. I don't know. Uh, I don't think Louis was that strong a leading man in the first place. And, uh, oh, I, 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 I'll tell you def definitely, again, my opinion, the show was about Louis Jordan's character. Oh. It was about uh, the, the conflict within a man who is a, a uh, psychiatrist and... Uh, is introduced to uh, previous lives. That's hardly the stuff of, you know, the science of, of psychology. And he, his, his conflict between believing one and, and not believing it uh, was what the show was about. Unfortunately, as I said, he was not a very strong leading man, so they played it to Barbara Harris's character. Who was the lady who had the previous life? Right. That was what what it was about. Uh, but that skewed the show. Everything was she was doing all the big numbers, but the show was about him. So I think that was one of the major problems with the uh, with the show. That's why I said uh, they had a number, for instance, in there called Mom, and it was about his. But it was sung by uh, the lead, Louis that character. And it was about how every, everything is blamed on mom. You know, how the, the, the psychiatrist jumped to that conclusion. Mother was, uh, what mother did to you. And the, anyway, it was a brilliant Alan J. Lerner comedic number, which Louis really couldn't do all that well. And it was eventually cut. And I, I said, I never got a chance to do it on the stage. 
I know I could have made the number work. <laughs> I know it. But I never got the opportunity. So, anyway. Water under the bridge. A little, that's a few, a few years ago. <laughs> right. And um, another show that you worked on that did run for quite a short time on Broadway was The Education of Hyman Kaplan. And that was, that was uh, Mr. Abbott. Oh. I played... Yes, that was uh, traumatic, traumatic for me. The uh, I played the villain. Uh, it was about Hyman Kaplan and, and, and who wanted to become an American. So he goes to uh, school to learn how to speak English and whatnot, and that's where he has a relationship with uh, a funny little girl class who's not available because she's promised to a uh, to a suitor, or was promised by her family to a suitor in Europe. Yeah. So I'm the kind of a, I, hanging at, uh, over everything. The first act curtain was my entrance, huh. where Hyman, you know, Tom Bosley played Hyman, this little round man. Yes. Here comes. The, the guy who's going to, he finally, he ostensibly got stuck in England, couldn't get out. At one point, he was in jail in England. But the, the, the point is, he was stuck in England, couldn't get to America. And that's what they're waiting for, to see for him to come. And as I came, all I did was walk across the stage with the swagger of a Yiddish star, you know, a Yiddish theater star with that kind of, you know, with a slouch hat and a, and a cape. You know, and in, in in contrast to Hyman Kaplan, this doughboy little man, you know, and that was the first act. Kirk, I had uh, the the first scene and the second act. I had one number. That was it, uh, and it was a as close as I ever came to a showstopper. Oh. It was a kind of. He was also, you know, terribly, uh, what, self-centered. And, and, you know, he thought the world revolved around him. You know. And, of course, he said, he, the, the girl is trying to, to learn English, wants to learn a trade so that she can be a part of America. And he's still from the old country. He says, no, oh, that's all right. Once we're married, you won't have to do anything. You can just stay home, you know which is everything she didn't want to do. Right. Anyway, he had that attitude. The song was called, I'll Be an Old-Fashioned Husband. And uh, as they say, it was the closest I ever came to a showstopper. I'd opened the second act and got great response. Uh, the next scene, we finally have a breakup, and, and, I, and I'm thrown out of the show, and that's it. Uh -huh. So I was on stage in that show, I mean, eight minutes, the whole thing. That, that was my whole existence. Opening night on Broadway, uh, I was convinced this was a part. Uh, during the during the standby understudy years, okay. and I was convinced once this once I'm, I do this number, now from now on I'm going to get parts. I'm not going to get buys or understudies. I thought this was going to make my career. I go out opening night, 
And I give my number, and there's polite applause. That's it. Oh. I didn't notice that there was talking in the audience during my during my doing the number. And when I was over, it was just polite applause. That's it. And we went on to the next thing. And I staggered practically to the elevator to go back to my dressing room. I thought. I must have blown it. What did I do? I did, did I not do the number well? I think I just I just destroyed my career. And as I got into the elevator, the elevator man says, Do you hear what happened during the intermission? I said, Well what, what what? What happened? He said, They came to get Mayor Lindsay out of the audience because Martin Luther King was assassinated and there were riots up in Harlem. Oh. And that's what the people were talking about. This was the first number after the intermission. And that's what the, they were all talking about. Oh my God, Martin Luther King was assassinated in riots in Harlem. So <laughs> I had to wait about three, four more years to get to the Rothschilds before the career was uh, established. Yeah. And that was the, that was the one where I, where I, just an exit line for myself. But in the, in the second scene, she, she, or in the end of that scene, she uh, throws me out. She says, no, 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 I'm not going to marry you. That's it. And I, ha I didn't have an exit line. And I came up with an exit line. I suggested it to have it. She said, try it. And it worked like a charm and stayed in the show. And what line was that? I don't know if it'll won't mean anything out of context. <laughs> Uh, well, it was based upon his self-centeredness. She uh, throws him out, basically, and, he, and he exits and slams the door behind himself. But before I exited, her name was Fadula Kegelman. That was her name. And, I, and as I got to the door, I took a pose and I said, uh, Fadula Kegelman, what you miss? And left. <laughs> Yeah, okay. <laughs> so it was. It was. Uh, it, it got me not off. Not only an uh, off the stage with a laugh, but with an exit. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah. And at this time on Broadway in the in the fifties and sixties, did you have a sense that you were in a golden age of Broadway? And would you define it that way now? Uh I, I didn't. I, I was in the middle of it. It was, uh, you know, it was the only thing I knew. I don't know about you know, at golden age. Yes, there were great shows. I once did a Tony Awards. Uh, there were four of us. We did a twenty-minute medley of songs from shows that did not win the Tony. And, I, and that was in the 70s, I guess. So, I mean, we did songs from Gypsy. Gypsy did not win the Tony. You know, there were that many great shows that there was a, I mean, it was a great medley of, of songs from sec, second place shows. That's how, how great it was. But I didn't recognize it as a golden age. Not until after it, and now they named it the Golden Age. And for some reason, I was a part of it. Believe me, I was not a part of it. 
except for bells are ringing. I was the only <laughs> show I did it in the quote golden age. Every other one I was in a in the chorus, and they were mostly bombs. Oh. Or the standby. Understudy. Standby. And how did you first hear about the Rothschilds, or have that first come into your life? Well, I, I had. Let, let's go back to uh, Anything Goes. Oh. Anything Goes off Broadway. Uh, the soubrette was Marjorie Gray. Marjorie Gray was being courted at the time by Sheldon Harnick. Sheldon saw Anything Goes probably 50 times. <laughs> he would come down. Sometimes he'd see the whole show. Sometimes he'd only see the second act. But he would be picking up Marjorie uh, for, as, for a date. They were an item at the time. They eventually married. They still are married. Uh so I got to know Sheldon, and he became, in a sense, a fan. From that time on, any time he had a show, I had a shot at it. So I lost, uh, let's see, I lost She Loves Me to Jack Cassidy. I lost uh, 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 Fiddler on the Roof to Bert Convy, I think. I lost uh, The Apple Tree to Alan Alda. Uh Parts that he always had me audition for his, for his shows because he, he really was a fan. And uh, I remember we were in, uh, he has a place on, in, on the uh, on Long Island out to Hamptons, and we were out there. Uh, we had taken a place for the summer or something, and we were uh, socializing. And uh, he said to me, listen, I have a show coming up that I think is right for you. And... Uh, Basically, that was it. Uh, he took the director to see Simon Kaplan to introduce to me, uh, to introduce me to him, you know, so that he would know. Uh, I still had to audition, but uh, but I had the role. Uh, it was, I think, he kind of constructed it for me. I don't know, but the, he 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 had me in the mind while they were they were working on it. So that, that's what got me to the Rothschilds. Oh, yes. And what was it like to have, or if you prefer not to talk about this, I understand, but what was it like to have Harnick and Bach sort of splitting up during the run of the Rothschilds? They didn't split up during it. They did not split up during it. Oh. No. They split up after it. Um, what caused the split Once again, the Rothschilds only got mixed reviews. It was a brilliant score, but it had major book construction problems. That is, as I said before, uh, it was about two generations in how they interacted with the establishment. Uh, I mind being the first generation. So the second act was about how the second generation does that. Well, that's a great literary idea, but it's not a very good dramatic idea because an audience invests its emotional chips in the first act in a character. It follows that character. character In the original script, my character died at the first act curtain. 
and the second hour is totally about the next generation. Well, they found out very quickly they couldn't do that. They had it because once I died, they had a, it was like starting a new show. So they kept me alive. I kept putting strong. They gave me a song in the second act. It, uh, I, historically, I was I went to a, a conference. Uh, which was which occurred about eight years after my death, <laughs> historically. But they had to do it from, uh, just to keep the character alive, because that was the character that that the audience was was attached to. But the problem was that the second act wasn't about me; it was about the boys, and that never. You can't do that to an audience. You can't ask them to. To, to reinvest their emotional chips and, into other people after the intermission. So anyway, we were having that. That was one of the problems. Uh, I don't know if that was if it was recognized in those terms by the by the creative staff. That's when the director left and Michael took over. Uh, they brought in one of the things. I think one of the things that that uh, that was the breakup was uh, they, they, uh, the director left or fired, I don't know. Uh, and uh, not only was Michael made director, but uh, they brought in uh, Stein, Joe Stein, who had written Fiddler. Now, when they started, they particularly did not want to do redo Fiddler. <laughs> And yet here they were bringing in Joe Stein, whose expertise is Yiddish humor, you know, to, to, to try to lighten it. And they did put in some laughs and some Yiddish humor and things like that, but that really didn't fix the, the major structural problem of the, of the, of the piece. And uh, Jerry Bach was uh, violently against that. He did not want to uh, changed the quality. Didn't want to make it Jewish. Wanted to keep it universal. And that's why Jerry and Sheldon broke up. Uh-huh. Well, that was one of the causes. I had no idea, you know, what really was happening between the two. But they never did work together again. Right. Unfortunately. With the Rothschilds, um, what did you think of Derek Goldby, who was, of course, the first director, and, and what was that collaboration uh, like before? Derek, he was a good choice because, specifically, they did not want to make it about Hamish people, you know, happy slaves in a ghetto, you know. They wanted to make it about uh, people who took their lives in their own hands and, and moved ahead, because right. uh, that's what about and and Derek was very he had created a created a wonderful piece where uh, Keen Curtis played all the villains all played all the villains uh, you know first the the, the, the Prince of uh, Frankfurt and then the Napoleonic leader and then the, uh, I don't remember the characters but but he played all the villains and it was a I thought it was a terrific idea but when it didn't get good reviews the question is why I, I'll give you my idea about the structure that it was a great literary idea but a very bad 
idea to, you know, they should have done just the first act and expanded it. Oh. And with my death or something like that. That might have been one of the, but they didn't do that. They tried to, it became a, a half and half by the time we got to New York. Uh, it, the, the interesting part about it is I kept getting older and older as we went from city to city. If we had added one more at a time stop, I might have made it to the final curtain. Oh, I thought he was, I thought he was terrific. But he represented, and, and you know, they wanted to soften it. I guess they thought maybe it was too harsh. They wanted to soften it, and, and that turned out to be a wrong idea. Oh, yes. And um, after the Rothschilds was, of course, the sign in Sidney Brewstein's window, the Lorraine Hansberry play. And what was it like to be working with Alan Schneider on that then? Yeah, Alan is. Yeah, Alan was very. Uh, that was a very interesting thing. I we closed the Rothschilds on like January fifth or something like that. I went into rehearsal maybe ten days later for uh, Simon Sidney Brewstein's window. We opened. It lasted what? It was previewed for a month and then lasted maybe three weeks. <laughs> And then I went back and did the road company at the road job. <laughs> it just right in there. Um, it was an interesting concept. Uh, it, it was a, the play, the sign, the Sidney Bruce, but musicalized uh, with, with a uh, Greek chorus concept. Very interesting. Very interesting work. I, I liked it, it did, but it uh, unfortunately... As much of my work went down the toilet very quickly. <laughs> but it was good. Ray Fox, uh, good lyrics. I thought, uh, uh, interestingly, I was paired with Zora Lampert. Zora Lampert, I went to high school with, in the High School of Music and Art. She was the queen of the of the drama club, you know, and was in everything. I never set foot in that door. <laughs> I was never an actor at that point. I was purely I was one of the best musicians in the in the school, and I was pl I played my own prom for God's sake. Uh -huh. uh, so, uh, and all of a sudden, she had a career on Broadway, and then all of a sudden, I made it on Broadway. And here we were thrown together again. Interesting lady. Interesting lady. No, I thought it was, listen, everything I did, I had some emotional, you know, you, you put some emotional uh, investment in. So I, I, I thought it was, I, I can't look back badly on anything I did. Oh, yes, which is great. And, um, with the Rothschilds, with the experience of touring it after that, did you find that it was received the same way by audiences all around the country, or were there differences, do you think? Rothschilds was a big hit on the road. Oh. It was, it toured very well. Uh, I, I left it. It continued without me. What did I do? I went into Pajama Game, I think. What did I do after? Yeah, I think it was Pajama Game. Uh, back on Broadway, and uh, uh, we played we played it to uh, standing room only in in uh, L.A. and and uh, 
San Francisco. But that was the end of that segment, and I didn't want to go out on the road with it. I think I think I went into pajama game right after that. Uh, anyway, uh, it it, it uh, the problem with the play still exists, and it's a very expensive production. Costumes and scenery, you know, very expensive. So it has has not been done that in any large way yet. since then. It's been done off Broadway a few times, but uh, not not very successfully. Right, right, and. With um, with the pajama game, you of course opposite Barbara McNair and a sort of early interracial couple on Broadway. And did you receive any yes. any backlash about that or? No, 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 no. no I didn't. I didn't. Anyway, I mean, maybe there, maybe there was backlash, but I didn't. I didn't. A, if, if there was, I would ignore it. Uh, the interesting part about, as I said, I had done heavily characterized parts for Mr. Abbott. So when they were casting, <clears throat> when they announced <clears throat> the revival of uh, Pajama Game, I was not invited to audition for it. And I went to my agent and I said, because Mr. Abbott just thought of me as a character actor doing all these heavily characterized parts. <clears throat> I said, I, can you get me a, an audition? So they called and said, would like to audition. I walked in. I didn't have to sing. Abbott said, come on up here. Come on up on stage. I went up there, and he actually said to me, you can play anything, but you can play this. And I said, if you're going to restage it the way it was originally done, probably not. But you've already changed it. It's now an interracial couple. But I seem I I, seem, I don't think you can have a gee gosh babe, you know, leading man who gives a shit kicker. <clears throat> You're gonna have to have a street smart guy who you could believe in a in an interracial relationship. I said, besides, the man's name is not Smith, it's Sirokin. He's a Pollock from from Chicago. He's not a, a country boy. So I, I basically talked myself into it, it which it, which was true. You had to have a street smart leading man who could have that relationship in, in those days. That was 1973. That was uh, 73, 74, I forget. 73. Yeah. Anyway. And... Um, with all of these great roles that you played on Broadway, was there any one that you didn't get to do that you wish you'd gotten to do? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. You know, I never played. Yeah, I, 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 I actually auditioned for the second road company of Music Man. Uh, this is when, when, when Preston was doing it on Broadway and... Uh, Forget who was doing the road company. It was the second company to go on, and I got the job. Oh. I I succeeded. They offered me the job. Problem was, I had just had my first baby, and I could not leave my wife at home with the baby. So we would have to go on the road with a baby and a nanny, and uh, it was the baby was months old. You know, it was the real infant. Right. So it was, we we couldn't come to terms on how much get paid because.
because I had to have I had to be able to take a nanny with me and another hotel room or the extra expenses. So it, it never so I never got to play the, the music man, which you know I always thought I'd be great at. It. That's one role. I never played the king, king and I. Uh, I never played Tevye for that matter. And if I, I we 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 fooled with it for about a week and a half in the nineties. There were two different producers or something. Uh, they actually came to Broadway with uh, what was his name? Uh, very good actor. Um, that, that was one. That was a, a, a company that failed. It didn't do well at all. Uh, what else did I not do? <laughs> I did not do a whole bunch of roles. I can't think of any others. And um, one role you did do both on stage and on TV was I Do, I Do, opposite Lee Remick. And yeah, I Do, I Do, I Do on, on, uh, uh, on camera. We did a, a tape version of it, yes. Wonderful version. Oh, yes. She was wonderful, too. Lee Remick. Normally, the people who did I Do, I Do was, was uh, Ethel Merman and Mary Martin and these strong women, you know. But when Lee Remick did it, she did it like a bird. And when she put that hat on it, the Flaming Alice, that was a change. Oh. Yeah. Anyway, I, I really enjoyed doing that one. And... You also did a kismet at the Kenley Players with Dolores Gray, and I'd be curious to ask, what was it like to be working with Sean Kenley? <laughs> <laughs> Kenley Players. Did you know Kenley? Did you ever have anything to do with Kenley? Do you know anything about him? Yes, I, I know he was a man and a woman in, in the winter. Yes, and a woman. And, uh, in the summer, he was a man, and in the winter, he was a woman. Anyway, the point is, he was considered the great showman of the Midwest. Well, that's because he had a very low common denominator. We did Kismet. Kismet was specifically done by Herb Ross was the choreographer, the original Kismet. And he went out of his way to be exact and specific on the, the dancing and the, you know, so that it was accurate oriental dancing. <laughs> we got to, to uh, and the director who, who put it together tried to stay with it and and uh, and uh, so that he so that it would be as accurate as he could do it. And we opened, and a, and a week later, Kenley came in and had the chorus girls doing high kicks. <laughs> Great showman, I don't know. Successful showman, yes, but that's because. He played right down to his audience. Uh, I, uh, that was, I loved doing it because I wanted to play that part. Oh, yes. Yeah. And what is the challenge like of keeping your voice up when doing a part that's such a big part to sing? Uh, I I don't think I ever had uh, laryngitis in my life. I never missed a show because I couldn't sing. Missed shows because I was on vacation or I was sick or something or bro broke a leg or, you know. But I never I never had vocal trouble. Once I started studying singing uh, and learned how to sing, 
because I was a crooner as a musician, you know, with the microphone right in my mouth. Uh, I had to learn how to project and how to, uh, how to keep it up. It's a little gone by now, I must tell you. I haven't really got sing in a long time. Who wants to hear an old man sing, you know? Oh, no. Well, I would love to hear it. I don't know. And so after, uh, after the Rothschilds and Pajama Game, when you had the great success, of course, with Barney Miller, um, what made you decide to come back to theater at a certain point? And well, I really wanted to come back to theater immediately after Barney. Uh-huh. Barney was... Uh, I wanted either theater or films. I did not want to do television again. Uh, in those days, a television star did not necessarily cross over to films. It was very difficult getting film work, good film work, let's put it that way. Uh, so I was looking for films, but I would certainly, what happened was, uh, Alan Lerner contacted me. He had a show that was going to open, and he wanted me to do it. I thought, well, this is, this is perfect. I'll go from... from uh, Eight years of Bonnie Miller, right into an Alan J. Lerner hit. It's got to be, you know. Unfortunately, it was one of the worst shows Alan ever wrote. <laughs> <laughs> I never got past the audition. They, that is, they were auditioning it for me. And it was just so bad that I just could not conceive of even getting involved with it. It, it opened, I think it closed the, the next night. What was it called? Uh, dance a, dance a little closer. Yeah, yeah. Dance? Well, it was terrible. <laughs> it was a misbegotten idea and, and not very well written. Anyway, that, so that, that's what started me going about for me. Then I, uh, back to Broadway. But then again, you know, Broadway was what I... What I was brought up on, you know, that was my, I thought I could, that's the place where I should be. I, I still think I'm stronger on, on, on stage than on camera. Uh, but that's, you know, water under the bridge now. Right. And what... although, although I must say, uh, it's a pleasure doing two jukes talking. It's, it's really fun. It's really you know, easy and, and funny. There's nothing like getting a laugh. Oh, yeah. And it's a great play. I got to see you in it a few weeks ago, and it was wonderful. Yeah. And um, another duo, sh- or primarily duo show that you did on Broadway, not entirely, was I'm Not Rappaport, opposite Ossie Davis. And what was that uh, like to I, be with him? That was... Uh, a toughie, mainly because I replaced Judd Hirsch in it, and I had a prior commitment immediately before it. So I had an interrupted rehearsal. It was very difficult. I rehearsed for about a week, and then I had to go and do my, my job for two weeks, and then I came back for another week and a half or something. That was I, I hired somebody while I was away just to run lines with me because it's a, it's a monster uh, 
basically a two-hander. There are a few other characters, but a lot of scenes are just the two of us sitting. And uh, uh, so that was very difficult for me, but it was uh, very successful. I stayed a full year. I, I was... Right, I think I had a contract for nine months, and then they asked me to stay for another three months. Yeah, I was in it for a full year. That was, it was a good show. Oh, yes. And when you were coming in like that to the show, were you able to get a lot of direction from Daniel Sullivan, or was it more from the stage manager? Or No, no Dan Sullivan directed, directed the second company, directed me and Ossie. Dan Sullivan. Yes. No, I got the uh, Dan hired me again for Sisters Rosenzweig. Oh. So I must have done well with Dan. Dan, I, if I was living in New York, I'm not sure I would have worked for Dan many, many times. But uh, oh, yes. I was, you know, I made most of my career in television after, you know, after that. Oh, I did do a couple of shows after that. I did uh, Cabaret. What else did I do? Oh, you um, did um, The Gathering? Gathering was, a, gathering was a, an example of why... The perfect example of my career. Oh. I was always attracted to great... to roles that I thought I could really dig into. And the gathering had a character like that. Unfortunately, the play itself wasn't all that good. And that's the story of my life. I've always been attracted to great parts in not so great plays. Oh. So. <laughs> that's very interesting. Yeah. And how, uh, sort of looking back, how do you think that Broadway had changed from 1957 up to 2002? Oh, 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 oh Broadway. Corporate. Broadway's not corporate. When Disney comes in with the show, you know it's going to run. They don't care what uh, it thinks. In my day, if you didn't get the New York Times, John Rich, or when it was Clyde Bonds or John Rich, if you didn't get those, didn't matter what Channel 11 liked or loved or, or the Herald Tribune liked, if you didn't get the New York Times, Post-closing notice. And that's what happened to all the shows in the 60s and early 70s for me. They didn't pass muster with John Rich. I can't tell you how many shows he closed on me. Well, that doesn't exist anymore. Once Disney got involved, came in, they said they're going to run a show like they run a movie. And they do. They don't care what what John Rich says or or any of the critics. So uh, it's, it's corporate. But you couldn't do that when when individual producers had, you know, a budget of exactly what it cost to, but they, they couldn't keep it going. Right. Disney would keep it going, whether they're losing money or not, till till everybody forgets what the critics say, and then they say, "Oh yeah, I heard about that show," and all of a sudden it's running four years, five years. That's <laughs> it's a whole different world. Oh, yeah. uh, in the independent producers are still having the same problem, but but cor- corporate producers, no problem. You got what the, the the other what's the other one? Clear. Uh, oh, 
Oh dear, can't remember the name of the other producers that do road shows and bring them into New York. Uh, anyway, it's a different world. Different world. And do you personally like to read reviews of your own work? Or yes, I do. I do. I like to read. I want to find out what people think. Of uh, I don't always agree with them. Uh, the, uh, the reviews for Two Jews Talking were mixed. Uh, and rightly so. It's depending on, on, on your point of view. If you accept it for what it is, you know, two sketches of two, of, 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 a, of a comedic concept, it's fine. If you demand a play with structure, it's not fine. So it all depends on the uh, critic's point of view. Uh, yeah, but I like to read them. I like to read uh, Sometimes I find out things, you know, that people think that it, I, I never thought of. Definitely. I never really suffered from critics. I must say that. Yeah. It's always the play suffers. I, I pretty much uh, got through no, no matter what I did with good reviews. Yeah. And um, before we do talk a little more about Two Jews Talking, I'd love to ask about Cabaret, which was your last Broadway show to date, and what was it like to work with Sam Mendes on that? Well, that was one that I did not work with Sam Mendes. I worked with the stage manager, you know, to get me in. He came in and he did uh, a cleanup rehearsal after he saw it and changed what, you know, what he didn't like. Um, he had nothing to say to me. Uh, I imagine that meant I was okay. I had a question that, I, uh, that he never answered. So it was very weird. Um, I guess he was busy. I don't know. <laughs> and what did you like about the sort of unconventional staging of... Or uh, I thought it was or cabaret... This, that, this version, the, the Donmar version of Cabaret was just a brilliant idea. As was the, the uh, re, rethinking of Chicago. Oh, yes. Look at that. That was a bomb. Chicago was a bomb in 1975. I saw it. It deserved to be a bomb. <laughs> it was so overly produced and slow and whatnot. And then when they did it, uh, what they do? Uh, reprise? What was it called? Oh, encores. Encore. They did it at encore, and they did not have scenery, which meant they could move it along, and, and it was just you know, imagine a, a scene was a chair and a table. That was all they needed. And uh, the, the producer saw that and said, that, "Let's try that." And Bing, look what you got. Chicago, this version of Chicago is far superior than the one Bobby Fosse did. But then again, when they did the movie, that was Fosse's. The immediate transition from realism to, to uh, vaudeville, right off the bat. That's why the movie was could work. He imagined it for the stage, but you couldn't make it work because you had to move furniture, you had to move furniture. I thought that I thought fabric was fascinating, but the 
with the girls playing the horns and whatnot. This give me some. Oh yeah. And to yeah. to take us up more to the present day, I'd be curious to ask, what was the period of the pandemic like for you, both personally and as an artist and all of that? Slow. <laughs> <laughs> Slow. Everything stopped. Uh, I, did, I don't think I worked for a year and a half. I don't know. Once the pandemic came in, I had just done a play uh, and it closed just as the pandemic hit. And that was it. I, uh, I don't think I did many concerts or anything after that. I, it was a long period of nothing. But then, you know, it started up again. Actually, most of it is, you know, the occasional uh, TV appearance, the occasional stage play, there's a uh, couple of uh, musicals that never met Broadway. And I, I follow this with a, a revival of a show out in Kansas City. I'll be there for a few months. Oh. Then I'm going to try to revive this. I don't know whether they're going to try and keep it going. I don't know. I'm leaving uh, three weeks. Oh. I have to go to my next gig. I don't know what's going to happen. I guess they're trying to re recast it. We'll see. Oh. Good luck. <laughs> right. And how did, um, to go back a little bit, how did Two Jews Talking first come into your life? Yes. Uh, the show was originally written for Ed Asna. Ah. Ed Weinberger had worked on Mary Tyler Moore and New Ed very well. They had actually, he had actually written a one-man show for Ed that Ed used to do. And I think they even wrote a book together. Uh, so they were very close. This was supposed to be done. They were going to try it out at a theater in North Carolina and four days before they opened, Ed died. Oh. So uh, it, it went back. Uh, he, he had this property and the uh, they couldn't do it, and that's when he contacted me. Uh, we made some changes that I thought were necessary or, or suggested, and we did it back in North Carolina, believe it or not, with her. I don't think there was a Jew within miles, <laughs> but it went, but, but the laughs were there because the man is a funny writer. He wrote funny. Didn't have to, you don't really have to be Jewish to understand two Jews talking. Right. Uh, you know, it's an attitude, but it's about life. And uh, uh, then it was re uh, that, that that's when Bernie Capel came on board, and uh, and he and the Skinner uh, St. Clements, I guess, read a script and decided they wanted to do it. And so, quite honestly, to give Ed his shot at getting a play on. That's why I'm here. Oh. Uh, certainly not <laughs> off-Broadway financially. <laughs> <laughs> right. What kind of roles would you like to do in, in the next few years? Uh, well, my ballet career is over. <laughs> uh, there's not all that much that I can't do, quite honestly. I'm very old. I don't know if you've checked my Google. Oh, yes. But yeah. uh, I'm I'm very old, and uh, uh, and it's difficult. I had uh, surgery in July, oh. which made moving around. That's why the two Jews are just sitting there, because I can't 
you know, I, I enter and exit. That's about the extent of it. So the physicality is starting to to, to get there. Uh, also, quite honestly, trying to re- learn a full script is very hard. Uh, an, an hour and ten minutes, we you know, <laughs> we're down to, but the, a two and a half hour play, I, I probably couldn't do. Uh, I could do a play where you, where you, where you and I am going to do, uh, I'm doing a revival of Come Blow Your Horn out of Kansas City uh-huh. and playing the Luigi Kobe part, which is hit and run. Three-page scene, four-page scene, out. Another four-page scene, out. Finale. That's it. You know, hit and run. Uh, which is what I did in a musical. I played the, the, the father role in uh, Grumpy Old Men musical. Played the, uh, the, the old man in that. Uh, also, hit and run. Come on, do you, a good hunk of scene. Get your laughs, take your bows, and leave. <laughs> So that's basically what I can do. I, you know, uh, you've got to come to terms with your physical limitations by now. And then the, um, the very last question I'd love to ask you is, with such a wonderful career in the arts and everything, what advice would you give to somebody just starting out as an actor? Well, first of all, I don't know the acting business today. Uh, I know the acting business. When I started in it, and maybe it was... I suspect very different than today. Quite honestly, if I had to compete with the singer dancers that are on Broadway today, I probably would not have gotten very far. I had a nice voice. It was not as strong as it was not Alfred Lunt, uh, uh, Alfred Rick. It was not uh, John Rate. But I, I was a good enough actor and a good enough mover dancer to to to, to make it work. Today, they're trained, the dancers and, 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 and big singers. They're incredibly talented today. I don't know anything about... All I can tell you is if you want to be in the show business, you got to try. That's it. Try. Study. Uh, study all the technique, all of the singing, dancing, acting, and, and give it a shot. That's all. If you're any good... Maybe it'll make it. It's a very long shot. Always was a long shot. Uh, but if if you can't do anything else, <laughs> do, give it a shot. Uh, my thought is none of them are in theater. So there you go. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been such an honor to... A, ple- a pleasure. A pleasure. Uh, I'm... Uh, thank you for spending all this time with me. <laughs> Listeners, thank you for tuning in, and remember to come back next time when I am joined by veteran actor Tom Sesma. Tom Sesma is currently appearing off-Broadway in A Man of No Importance at Classic Stage Company, and his prolific stage career has spanned La Cajo Fall, Chuchem, Nick and Nora, Search and Destroy, Face Value, Man of La Mancha, and The Times They Are a Changin' on Broadway, as well as A Sherlock Carol, Letters of Suresh, Superhero, Pacific Overtures, Sweeney Todd, As Thousands Cheer, In a Pig's Valise, Othello, Cymbeline, and more in New York. You won't want to miss that conversation, so make sure to tune back in, and thanks for listening.